0: to differ the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor of the Bulwark. I am joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal and Damon Linker of the Week. Linda Chavez is off this week, but Bill Kristol, the editor-at-large of the book, is sitting in for her, and our special guest is Will Salatin of Slate. We have a number of things to get to this week, a very important oral argument at the Supreme Court this week, and we're going to come to that in just a minute, but before we do, I cannot resist beginning with some news, particularly this is for you, Will Salatin, because... Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff to President Trump, has written this book that features the revelation that Trump tested positive for COVID on September 26th of 2020, um, three days before his debate with Biden. I think, and you wrote a great column about it, which I'd like you to just talk about for a second. But before you do, I want you to note that just in the news before we started this podcast meadows has gone on television and basically disavowed his own book in true bolshevik show trial fashion he has agreed with comrade trump that yes his book is fake news
1: <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> 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 yeah this is uh, so you know it's hard to find anything new about donald trump that that sort of lowers one's estimation of him That's um good. in this case To put this in very small terms, this just sort of moves the timeline of the point at which Trump knowingly put other people in danger forward three days in 2020, right? The end of September, he knew that he was at high risk of COVID, that he had COVID symptoms. Uh, He eventually got a confirmatory test, and he continued to put people in danger. Now we know he did it three days early. We know that before he went to the debate with Biden, Donald Trump had a positive COVID test. This means a number of things. It means that in all of the intervening stuff, including the debate, he knew that he should be quarantining under CDC protocols, chose not to, and chose to put other people at risk and not tell them, right? Uh, Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, also chose not to tell anyone. And my favorite bit about this, if one can say favorite about something so awful, is that it's been well known for some time that Donald Trump, after he recovered, blamed implicitly gold star families of families uh, who lost loved ones in, in combat in service to the United States for potentially infecting him at the end of September 2020 with covid coming to the white house and doing a reception so now what we know is that donald trump when he cast that slur at the families of these fallen servicemen and women knew that he already had a positive COVID test before they came to the White House. So number one, he's slandering them and knows he's doing so. And secondly, he was the one who put them in danger, knowing that he had a positive COVID test. So yes, it has managed the unthinkable, which is to lower my estimation of Donald Trump.
0: Okay, we put that in the file cabinet and move on to really probably the most consequential Supreme Court oral argument in many, many years. Conservative legal scholars and conservatives generally, pro-life people have been waiting for decades to see Roe v. Wade potentially overruled. And this week, in the case of Dobbs versus Mississippi, we may see that happen. It was a very interesting oral argument, it featured some of the arguments that have until now mostly raged in the press and in law review articles and elsewhere about the nature of abortion and about whether women can have lives of autonomy without this guaranteed constitutional right. So so there's a lot to unpack about this issue and about the arguments, but I'm going to start with you, Bill Crystal, and ask sort of a more global question, namely... Let us assume that the court will overturn Roe and Casey. In the grand scheme of things, what do you think are the positive and negative effects that that will have on the country?
2: You know, I'm old enough to have (laughs) disliked Roe when it came down. John Hart Eli, who taught at Harvard Law School, and whose course I actually audited in grad school, who I think was personally moderately liberal and pro-choice, famously said this in class. I remember him saying it and then put it in an article that uh, the problem with Roe v. Wade is it wasn't that it was bad constitutional law that it's not constitutional law at all Mm it is it was such a reach that i didn't think it was good law and thought uh, i think correctly that it would open up all kinds of other problems over the next decades that it was there and including the reaction to it and a kind of radicalization that the political process was kind of working this out at the time you know new york and california legalized abortion at least for a certain stretch of time and other states were debating it. Uh, it was an unpleasant and nasty debate, and heated debate at the time, but but that's – I think we could have gotten through it. Now, 50 years later, I don't know. I mean I I really think it's unpredictable. Uh, you could be pro-life and still be nervous about what the actual effects on the country, on the almost social fabric of the country are. And I sort of suddenly disrupt something after 50 years, probably on what, a 5-4 decision? I mean – which then throws it back into state legislatures, which are much more polarized than they were 50 years ago, geographically and in other ways. And uh, so I think the political effects are unpredictable. And the maybe it'll work out okay. I mean, conservatives like to use the imagery of lancing the boil or kind of this will be the moment. It would go back to the political process. I think some of the justices indulged in that. But, I mean, for me personally, I see why the chief justice seems to want to be able to adjust the mechanism of Roe and Casey without overturning them, upholding reasonable pro-life laws at the state level, without putting the whole country into a kind of frenzy on this one issue. I think it's hard to see how this is going to be very healthy for the country. I mean, it might advance, I guess, the pro-life cause somewhat, though not so much, since most the big states that where most abortions happen won't enact terribly pro-life legislation, I guess. But Anyway, I, I, long story short, we don't have much experience with something of this magnitude being overturned after 50 years, and especially, again, on a 5-4 decision where polling suggests that the majority of the country isn't quite where the people who will be most enthusiastic about such an overturning would be. I mean, it's not quite like some of the other cases where famous things got overturned, Brown v. Board overturned Plessy after a little more than a half century, but – most of the country was moving in that direction anyway. It still caused a huge amount of disruption, I think, for the good, ultimately. But we don't have much evidence, I think, or much experience of, of quite what this would look like. I'll just end by saying if it looks like they're gratuitously overturning it. as if Robert shows you could uphold Mississippi, basically, and not overturn Roe uh, in case he just modified them, what do people think when they just see the court choosing to do this seemingly because they just want to?
0: Bill Gostin. Bill Crystal points out that most abortions that take place in this country happen in big liberal states, California, New York, Illinois, and those states would presumably maintain very liberal abortion regimes, whereas more conservative states, obviously, like Texas and Mississippi, would not. But the chief justice did seem at the oral argument to be groping towards some sort of compromise position, not clear that the other conservative justices are going to be eager to go there with him. But he, you know, was saying, "Look, if the issue is you need to give women choice, why is having a cutoff of fifteen weeks not still permitting you know huge amount of choice?" And what he didn't say, but he could have added, is that eighty-eight percent of abortions occur within the first twelve weeks of pregnancy. Well, yes, but
3: I was surprised as I listened to the oral argument by how little resonance the chief justice's position, as articulated, appeared to have gained with any of the other five conservatives on the court. If there was a full-throated endorsement or even uh, noises to the effect that it was worth considering that option, I didn't hear them. Uh, And I think the chief justice may be alone on this one, although as deliberations proceed, who knows? Mm -hmm. He might gain strength. The broader political significance that I want to dwell on, as, as Bill Kristol did, I think is potentially profound. To be short-termish for a minute, I believe that it is the only issue now on the public agenda with the potential of getting Democrats, particularly Democratic women, but not just Democratic women, into the streets in protest and eager and motivated to vote in a way that they are not right now. Six in 10 Americans oppose the flat overturning of Roe v. Wade, and that number really has not budged for quite some time. It is true that a majority of Americans have moral qualms about abortion, but even some of the people with moral qualms don't think that it's a good idea to overturn settled expectations that have defined the lives of at least two generations of women. So the conservative legal movement at this point reminds me of the dog who chases the car for years till the dog finally catches the car. Then what? The populist conservative Henry Olson had a very interesting column in the Washington Post To the effect that for conservatives overturning Roe may turn out to be the easy part and it'll get much more difficult politically and in policy terms after that. In the medium term what we would get with an overturning of Roe is a patchwork nation where roughly half the states would have restrictions on abortion or outright prohibitions that Roe would not have permitted The other half of the states will write Roe into their laws and perhaps even their state constitutions. And to conclude, I would not be surprised if a number of corporations who've come under political pressure on other issues were pressured and responded to pressure from pro-choice forces and made locational decisions about their businesses based on state policy.
0: Damon Linker, Justice Kavanaugh talked about one of the reasons that this is such a difficult issue. He said there are two interests implicated in every abortion, the interests of the mother and the interests of the baby, and you can't split the difference. You have to choose. And that's not easy. And most Americans, I think, would agree with Justice Kavanaugh that it's really tough. And if you consult polling, you will see that people's feelings are very mixed. Bill alluded to this, but people are generally supportive of abortion in the first parts of pregnancy when a fetus or a zygote or whatever doesn't really resemble a a baby. And then the longer the pregnancy proceeds and the more those ultrasound images start looking like a darling little child, the more queasy people get, and down to late-term abortions, which are imposed by nearly everybody. And so it just strikes me that the chief justice's hope to be able to split the difference here, find a line that will satisfy everybody, is not possible. What do you think?
4: Well, I have two broad points to make about the Dobbs case, the oral arguments, and the political ramifications. The first one, speaking to your question, I agree with you that it is an extremely complicated moral question, and that somewhat contrary to the way that Justice Kavanaugh framed it, most Americans do find themselves trying to balance those two interests in a way that maybe won't satisfy a Thomistic theologian, but comport with our kind of common sense intuitions that, as you summarized early on, The interests of the mother should take precedent, and it's her decision about what to do. And then later, when the fetus is developed into what looks like simply a smaller version of an infant, the babies take precedent. And I think most Americans are roughly in that sort of muddled position. Now, then the question becomes when it comes to law, what do you do? Where do you draw the line? And since Casey, the main sort of flag here, has been viability of the fetus. So can the fetus survive outside the womb? If so, then it's okay for the state to intervene and say that's an illegitimate abortion, it's outlawed. The problem with the Mississippi law is that it very deliberately has picked a position fifteen weeks, which is roughly six weeks prior to typical viability. Although I believe there was a birth of a very premature child at about nineteen weeks just recently, showing that as medical advances continue, that line is going to slowly creep closer and closer to conception. But let's let's Damon, assume. Damon, can yeah. I
0: can I interject just real quick? Uh, yeah. That part of the viability argument was that at the time Casey was decided, which was 1992, at the time, viability was thought to be at about 24 weeks gestation. But medical science has changed since then. And they keep pushing back the date when a baby can survive, you know, having been born extremely prematurely. So anyway... Receipt.
4: Yes, absolutely. My position on abortion is very much the muddled middle position. I'm actually quite comfortable with using viability as a kind of marker because it is less arbitrary to my mind than any other. And I'll explain what the implications of that are now because what I found fascinating about the oral arguments is that the Chief Justice's objections, he kept going back to viability and asking, isn't that arbitrary? Why viability? The problem is that even if you think that it's, if not arbitrary, it floats, it's going to get closer to conception as medical advances continue. But the problem is that no other line is less arbitrary than that. In fact, they are more so. So if the Chief Justice wants to get his fellow conservatives to agree only. That the Mississippi law should stand because it's 15 weeks, but not overturn Roe and Casey completely. Then we're going to be in a crazy position where what you have in that case is something very akin to what the court deals with in gerrymandering cases and cases of electoral redistricting, where the Chief Justice has come right out and said, We're going to basically refrain to intervene on these questions in almost all cases because if we don't, there's going to be a new case every single time someone redraws a map and we're going to have to kind of arbitrarily decide which are valid and which are not each time. And that is exactly what is going to happen if they uphold the Mississippi law and don't overturn Rowan Casey. Because then another state is going to pass a law at 12 weeks and then 10 weeks and then six weeks. And every time they're going to have to revisit this and for no discernible reason at all say yes or no. And that, I think, the chief justice in the end will probably find it intolerable. So I will predict that actually Roe and Casey will be overturned and it will be six to three. That's my prediction. Now, is it okay to speak for another minute just to per- – yeah. I All I wanted to do was to lay down a marker because this is somewhat unusual on the podcast. I beg to differ with Bill Galston on the politics of this. I do not favor overturning Roe and Casey, but I don't think the politics are going to change things up all that much. I agree that we might get people in the street, a lot of women protesting, but they will be protesting in blue states. And I'm pretty much convinced that in most cases, the people who will be outraged by this— are the people who are already voting for the Democrats. And there are very few people who had always been voting Republican, but now they won't anymore because of this. I think the number of people who are in that category is probably quite small. Now, with our elections often very close, Decided by narrow margins, that could matter in some places, in some races a year from now. But on the whole, I think, I mean, Megan McArdle, the Washington Post columnist and sometime guest on our podcast, had a very good long Twitter thread yesterday in which she looked at a lot of the polling data on this. And I agreed with her conclusion, which was effectively that the number of women who – will change their vote from Republican to Democrat because women in red states will have a harder time procuring an abortion is probably extremely low. The people who are going to be very up in arms, the women who will be very up in arms about this, are both probably already Democrats and probably live in states where abortion is never going to change. It's going to continue to be available. Mona, should
0: I reply now or later? I'm going to come back to you, Bill. Um, So, yeah. Okay. Um, Will Salatin, I'm going to ask you to weigh in on this also. And also, before I do that, I just want to make a comment. Look, I have been writing pro-life columns for 25, 30 years, and I genuinely believe that abortion is a great moral evil. I recognize the the unfair burden that pregnancy places on women vis-a-vis men. Life isn't fair, um, but at the same time, I don't think that killing is the right answer, and I never have, and I continue to feel pretty strongly about this. And also, I just want to respond to one of the um, one of the ideas about viability because uh, we talk about this so much. And um, it comes up in every debate about abortion as if it's relevant that at 20 weeks they can often, with intense medical intervention, you know, let a severely premature infant make it. Um, Look, a a 40-week full-term infant needs 24-7 care also. They they can't survive on their own. Okay, so so the idea that viability is some magic solution to this it really isn't. The fact is, these are members of the human family uh, who need who need care and love, and um, and it is um, you know there are all kinds of things that we could do to make the lives of women um, uh, who find themselves in these positions uh, easier. I, I have. A role in a in a charity called In Shiver's Arms that provides all kinds of care to women and uh, for the first li- year of life of their infants um, and uh, and so forth. So anyway, I do think that there are humane more humane uh, alternatives. But um, so those are my cards on the table. Um, but now back to you, Will, on the politics of this. Um, I tend to agree with uh, with Damon that this will not actually be all that significant politically. But what do you think?
1: Oh, I think it will. I think it will. Okay. But let me actually address a couple of things. One is I'm kind of fascinated by the conversation that we've been having here. So a couple of you have referred to the chief justice and his attempt to, and, and we've been discussing this, the viability line, 15 weeks. Is there some middle ground? Can that be negotiated? And there is this alternative universe in which all of that would have been relevant. that's I mean, the universe in which Ruth Bader Ginsburg survived another three months and John Roberts, the chief justice, was the middle vote, in which case all of his questions about can we, within the framework of Roe, without officially overturning it, you know, keeping stare decisis, yada, yada, we just move the line to where Mississippi is at 15 weeks, everybody okay with that? And that could have been what happened here. Mm. And, in fact, there was this quite poignant moment in the oral argument where John Roberts says to the solicitor general from Mississippi, you know, you guys changed your argument during this case. You came in in your petition for cert and said you were going to talk about viability, and now you're talking about overturning Roe, the whole thing, what happened here? And the solicitor General comes up with a bunch of excuses. But the real answer is the petition for cert was in the middle of 2020, and then the final brief was in July 2021. And what happened in between is that Amy Coney Barrett got put on the Supreme Court, which makes John Roberts' vote irrelevant. There are five votes to overturn Roe v. Wade. So this middle ground position that we're all interested in is probably not going to happen. I mean, this is the first time I've listened to the Supreme Court and thought, oh, they're really going to overturn Roe. And I have to say, as the most pro-choice person in this group, probably – I don't know, maybe Bill is more I, – I can see the argument for doing so. There's a kind of cleanliness constitutionally to saying we should never have been in here, as Antonin Scalia said. This is not in the Constitution. Let's back out of this. It was a terrible mistake, and we're going to let people fight it out in the, in the legislatures, and that's fine except that I don't know why you stop at Roe. Why isn't that true of Griswold versus Connecticut, the birth control decision? Why isn't it true of Lawrence versus Texas, uh, the right to not to have your same-sex sex sex activity prohibited by the state? Why isn't it true of Obergefell, the the same-sex marriage? So I don't understand why, if we're gonna overturn Roe, there shouldn't be a wholesale retreat of the Supreme Court from all kinds of these personal liberty decisions around sex, in which case, that would be, if they followed through with it, a a trigger for a large uprising. And my suspicion is I'm with those of you who think that that there would be a significant backlash to this. And I don't think the Supreme Court should consider that when it makes this decision. But my evidence is the last time that the Supreme Court came close to overturning Roe was in 1989 with the Webster decision. And there was a significant boost in uh, turnout and I mean, a black man got elected governor of Virginia in 1989, and this was the reason, because abortion turned people against the Republican Party. And then there was a huge retreat by Republican legislators, and I suspect the same thing would happen here. A lot of places where we think pro-life lawmakers would ban abortion, they would in fact flinch because they don't want to lose those suburbanites who often vote Republican but voted for Joe Biden.
0: Okay, I'm going to bring Bill Galston back. But before doing so, I just want to mention that in certain states, you might see an effect on senators more than you would on members of the House. So, you know, members of the House are mostly in safe districts, as everybody knows but i was noticing in the news reports about this case that uh, a number of republican senators are suddenly saying things that sound a lot less stentorian in, in their abortion views in light of the fact that they may have to be running for re-election and appealing to suburbanites who might be upset anyway go ahead bill Galson. well will has said a lot of what i was going to say and so i can confine it to one or two
3: sentences there were a lot of voters In Virginia who switched from Biden to Youngkin. And if you look at the profiles of those voters, they are precisely the kinds of voters who would be most likely to be influenced by a decision to overturn Roe. But I suggest that we suspend this conversation and reconvene it in about 11 months and see what we say then.
0: Well, we'll have a lot to say because we always do. Right. But let us return with election results in hand yep. to this question. Well, we need a decision, so we'll wait on that, too. And with that, we will turn to our next topic. And our next topic is something that Bill Galston, you wrote about recently, which is can Biden get his mojo back? Although I don't think you have quite phrased it that way. But there's no question that the president's approval rating has suffered recently, and he has dropped most dramatically among independent voters, the very voters, Bill, you were just referencing. So his overall job approval dropped from 57% in February to 42% today, and that drop-off has been driven almost entirely by independent voters who went from supporting him 53% in February to 37% in November. So, first of all, do you think he can, and, and if so, what does he need to do? Well, I've written a couple of columns on this, and the first one
3: Rounded up a lot of previous examples of presidents who had fallen dramatically in the public's esteem during their first two years. I reminded people in one of those columns that Ronald Reagan was at 35% job approval in January of 1983. And I was able to find what I dimly remembered. I was Walter Mondale's issues director during that campaign. And so I did you know I did have an interest in these matters. Uh, mm. And I found a Harris poll that came out in January of uh, 1983 that showed Mondale leading Ronald Reagan by nine percentage points, 53 to 44. And uh, and we all know what happened in the next 18
0: months. Oh, but let's talk about it. <laughs> 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 I and, was working for Ronald Reagan when yeah. that happened. <laughs> you know, and, and look, there are a lot of other
3: examples of people who went way down after their first two years and recovered uh, to win handsome victories uh, just just two years later. So the argument from... The current doldrums of the Biden presidency just historically is not persuasive. A lot of things have gone wrong for Joe Biden in the past eight months. So half of what needs to happen for him to recover is for some of these matters to start going better for him. Will inflation be as bad three years from now as it is now? Will COVID seem as endless and unmanageable? In two or two and a half years, as it seems right now, et cetera. So events could help him out. But in addition, and this is the point that sticks in the craw of many of my fellow Democrats, he has to start moving back towards the Joe Biden that a lot of swing voters who voted for him thought they were voting for. And I used in my second column on this question the example of of immigration policy, but I could have used a lot of other examples of policies that implicate culture or culture and economics where the Biden administration is perceived and not without reason as having moved substantially to the left of where people thought Joe Biden was going to be when they voted for him and to my usual formula – A lot of people who voted for him thought he'd govern from the center of the country, and instead he's mostly governed from the center of the Democratic Party, and they haven't liked that very much. So Biden, to some extent, holds his fate in his hands, but in order to strengthen his position, I believe that he is going to have to break with or at least put some distance between himself and the majority of the House Democratic Caucus – to which he has subcontracted a substantial portion of his domestic policy agenda.
0: Bill Kristol, our mutual friend Mike Murphy, says that Biden needs to pick a fight. Do you agree with that? And if so, what kind of fight could he pick and win?
2: I mean, I, I partly agree with Mike and I partly agree with Bill Galston uh, just now, but I, w- I would just maybe add, rather than uh, differ from Bill Galston uh, in this respect, and this is kind of more along Mike Murphy's lines, in addition, I mean, I prefer centrist policies and moderately conservative policies in some cases, so I'd be happy, happier if the more Biden mostly uh, governed from the center on most issues. But I also think one problem the administration's having is more of a Jimmy Carter problem than a, you know, it's a left-wing administration problem. They just look sort of tired and and, and slow and a couple of weeks late on things and not very good at executing and a little stubborn when instead of admitting some errors and just not kind of taking charge. And so Mm -hmm. that's not really ideological. And so I'll give you one tiny instance. President Biden announced today, Thursday morning, his uh, updated COVID efforts in light of the Omicron variant. And there's mostly stuff on uh, almost all stuff, I think, seems reasonable to me. But uh, one thing which I've happened to Learned a fair amount about it over the last two few three months, the rapid testing, the estrogen testing. Uh, he wants to make that more available. So you, now, if you buy it, apparently insurance—if you're on a private insurance plan—insurance will be required to cover it. How exactly? I don't know. You you know, you buy these at the store. You don't. Get, it's not like a prescription. So I, how you send it? I guess a receipt to your insurance company, or your corporate insurer, and they pay you. They send you back twenty-five bucks if you bought one or. Do they send back 200 bucks if you bought eight? I don't even know. It sounds like they do from what Biden's saying. But this is crazy. I mean, the whole point of the antigen test is they should be cheap, hugely readily available, very easy to use. If you're a cashier, I said this on Twitter, uh, you know, at a supermarket and you think some jackass who wasn't vaccinated may well have you know been coughing at you while you were doing your job for the eight or ten hours the day before, you should have them at home. Test yourself. Test your kids. Make sure everything's okay. Do the same next the next day and feel comfortable about going on as well as, of course, getting vaccinated and boosted. This is what happens in Europe. And there are zillions of these tests. And we have FDA regulations, which are not really intended to address this issue, which the administration will not overrule and will not insist on making these widely available in the way they're two, three, four bucks in Europe. They're 25 bucks here. It's really not that we're not in the same position as Europe. And it's entirely, as I understand it, due to uh, certain kinds of FDA obstacles, which treat this as if it's a medical procedure and not a, a useful public health uh, tool. But they won't, they don't want to overrule the FDA. Why? So I looked looked into this a little. Everyone I talked to who's talked privately to very high, very senior Biden people say, well, they don't want to look like they're politicizing uh, this effort. You know, they criticize, everyone criticized Trump correctly for uh, overruling the public health experts. We can't get involved in that. But the, so again, but that's an example of a kind of Fine. That was a. It was good to criticize Trump for that. It was right to. But now they're governing. And they need to govern on this and on a bunch of other issues, I think, more aggressively. I don't know if that means picking a fight exactly, though that's not a bad idea when Republicans today are threatening to shut down the government because they don't like vaccine mandates. And they won't mm-hmm. let the courts resolve whether some of these are over the edge in terms of what the federal government can do. Uh, but that's a good fight to pick, incidentally, I would say. But some of this isn't so ideological, I guess, is my point, as, as I think just kind of energy in the executive, to use the phrase for, from the Federalist Papers.
0: Yeah. Uh, Damon Linker, one of the things that Ronald Reagan did, speaking again of Reagan, who – did you know that Reagan beat Mondale by like 49 to 1 states? I mean I, I don't know if you remember I, that. I, I do anyway. remember
4: that. I was only like <laughs> 14 years old, but I was watching. <laughs>
3: I no, mean, you are a puppy, aren't you? Yes,
0: yes, I am. <laughs> just, just couldn't resist taking a little dig at Bill Galton there. Okay, anyway. Would well, um, you speak up, Mona? <laughs> 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 um, but look, I, to, to, so to follow up on, on Bill Crystal's point, the fact is that part of being a successful leader is showing some macho qualities. And when Ronald Reagan fired. The air traffic controllers, because they were not allowed to strike, it was a move that was exceedingly popular because people felt like he was in charge. And Biden, I, you know, I submit that there is has been a real lack on Biden's part of anything approaching a kind of masterly move that suggests that you know, okay, you know, I've got, I've got this in hand on any subject. I mean, even, you know, when he keeps going to Congress hat in hand, begging them to pass his programs and keeps getting rebuffed, by the way, by his own party, so much of the way he has conducted this administration has felt very weak. And honestly, that's poison for a leader. What do you say?
4: Oh, I completely agree. I I like Bill Kristol's comments quite a lot, and you've added to them now. I I mean, I I have – Uh, I have hit Biden on this podcast in a couple of columns for being a little passive and allowing the left wing, the progressives, to lead so much of the uh, kind of legislative agenda in Congress and allowing uh, the progressives to drag down the bills that are, you know, at least the, the Build Back Better Act continues to languish. and. So I, I haven't found that particularly wise as political strategy, but but I think uh, Bill Kristol is quite right that this is – it's at least as much the energy in the executive question as it is the kind of substantive ideological content of this that – if Biden were more robust and stronger, and more articulate and more aggressive in pushing his agenda, it could do a world of good. But that has to be blended also with competence, and that, of course, since the the way the Afghanistan pullout uh, unfolded, has also been his big problem. So you could say it's perhaps being pulled to the left, but then that's combined with a kind of a lack of aggressiveness or strength in governing, but then also with the competence of the administration in executing those policies. So all of it together. Now, that being said, I'm not sure a kind of firing of the air traffic controller moment would have a last much of a lasting impact, precisely because of other things that a president is always kind of marginally responsible for. Of course, Reagan fired the uh, controllers quite early in his administration, and went into a kind of polling nosedive for the next year or so, and that was because of massive inflation, and it, that was under under attack by Paul Volcker and the Fed, with interest rates running around twenty percent, and then a huge recession that came in after that. So. The economy went into the tank in 1982 and into early 1983, and and if the election, re-election had been held then, I think he probably, if he didn't go down, he at least would have struggled quite a bit and not carried 49 states. One reason why he was able to run such a successful re-elect just a year and a half or so later was because he could proclaim it was morning in America, because it felt like it was. Uh, Because as soon as the, the interest rates had strangled inflation and they dropped, then the economy just took off, and he benefited from that enormously. Biden is dealing with an economy that's nowhere near as bad as that, but it's weirdly messed up right now, as we talked about when Noah Smith was here a couple weeks ago. Now, the latest numbers over the last week or so, it looks like energy-related inflation seems to be softening a little bit. Gas prices are falling. Oil prices falling. If that continues and then begins to spread throughout other areas of the economy and inflation begins to weaken, uh, then things could bounce back for him. That would obviously be very good for him. but. The COVID stuff, I mean, I don't know. Even back in the fall, in the early fall, when Biden's numbers really started to hit the mid-40s and lower. I wrote a column looking at one of the polls that had just come out then. It was either Morning Consult or Quinnipiac actually had a number of issue questions. And he was underwater in most of them already, but the one where he was still a couple of points above water was his reaction and and dealing with the, the pandemic. And that was even after we were deep into the Delta spike. So, you know, back then he still was getting a lot of benefit of the doubt from voters on that, but the fact that we are now through Delta, numbers were going down, now they're creeping back up probably because of seasonal issues at Omicron now here, oh my goodness, like if that – if that becomes anything like as bad, let alone worse than the delta wave of the summer, he's gonna go down a lot more. And and what can he do about that? Yeah, little things like the you know, like the stuff he released this morning that Bill Crystal talked about. Yeah, and there are probably more he can do, but in the end, this is a huge country with 330 million people and tens of millions of them have not been vaccinated and they're going to get sick and it's going to contribute to lingering mask mandates and travel restrictions and all the stuff we've been living with now for more, almost two years. And I really fear what the public opinion consequences of that are going to be for him if it becomes, again, another Delta wave and people start to think, oh my goodness, this is really never going to end. That's not a good situation for any incumbent to find himself in.
0: Will Salatin, uh, let's look a little bit at what some Republicans are doing in this current climate, because this could be an opportunity for Biden to engage in a little product differentiation and contrast. So Republican governors in a number of states are limiting the capacity of businesses to require testing or vaccines of their employees. In Kansas, Florida, and Iowa, they are permitting those who get fired from their jobs for refusing to get vaccinated to receive unemployment benefits. And then, of course, on right-wing media, there's sort of this, this outright kind of war on vaccines and on public health measures in general. Isn't that a possibly fertile way to frame this. Look, we're serious about getting the virus under control. They're serious about preventing us from fighting the virus.
1: Yeah, this is kind of an interesting reversal of the politics of abortion that we were just discussing. I mean, the Republicans are trying to present themselves as, hey, we're not against vaccines, right? We're we're just against vaccine mandates. It's very – it's similar in some ways to the sort of position – look, we're not saying we're for abortion. We're just for abortion rights, right? The right not to get a, a vaccination in this case. And I'm not sure that really works, right? I mean if you look at polling on this, on mandates, there is – Majority support or plurality support for mandates. There's a lot of intensity on the anti-mandate side. And it may be that Republican lawmakers and politicians just decided, look, we're already in bed with these people. Let's make the best of it. Let's, you know, we're gonna but but to but to shut down the government over it. I mean, I just watched a press conference where Nancy Pelosi was just like, bring it on. Because the Democrats don't have a lot of great issues going on right now, and they would be delighted if the Republican Party were to brand itself as the party of vaccine refusers. That would be one of the best choices of of a battleground that the Democrats could have.
0: Right. Okay. With that, we are ready to turn to our next topic, which is highlights or lowlights of the week. Let us begin with Bill Galston.
3: Well, this is an easy one, Mona. Thank you for calling on me first. The exchange between two young women representatives in the House, Lauren Boebert and uh, Ilhan Omar, and uh, you know, uh, every time I think the House has hit bottom, it <laughs> crashes through the floor, and yes, <laughs> there's another room below it, and. Uh, you know, and as, as nearly as I can reconstruct the events, uh, Ilhan Omar walked into an elevator that happened also to uh, contain Lauren Boebert. And there was some colloquy that ended with the r- remark that uh, Ilhan Omar doesn't have a backpack. She isn't wearing a backpack, so she's probably not dangerous. That is to say, not a terrorist carrying some sort of improvised explosive device and that set off a firestorm uh there was then a telephone call involving the two of them that went from bad to worse and Bubbert, you know refused to issue a public apology as i understand it uh
0: Actually, uh, Bill, she did issue an apology, and then she, um, a semi-apology. A semi-apology. So then, then, then she got trashed by Marjorie Taylor Greene for apologizing.
3: Okay, whatever the details are, and I can <laughs> I confess, the whole thing was so distasteful that I stopped following it closely after a while. But it was it was just disgraceful, mm-hmm. and the fact that. Very few people in the Republican Party had the gumption uh, to criticize Boebert, you know, for this you know out, outrageous public stance that she took. And then one of the few who did, Representative Mace, was then trashed by other Republicans. I simply don't know where this ends, but. It's terrible I've you know I've been following politics in the United States for more than 60 years and I can't remember a lot of instances as bad as this I really can't
0: right I, on that note I'm going to depart from our usual um, beg to differ uh, system and just invite Bill Crystal to weigh in on this because bill it, the other part of the story is that the next Speaker of the House, in all likelihood, Kevin McCarthy um, invited Green and Mace to his office and told them to stop feuding. And they both walked out and Bobert said that she was going to back a a primary challenger against Mace. So, So you have the presumed next Speaker of the House, a complete eunuch, um, unable to to even get two feuding members to behave in a civilized fashion. I just invite you to comment on this.
2: No, I mean, it says where the Republican Party is. I mean, the real leader, of course, is Trump, not, not McCarthy. That's why McCarthy's terrified. Marjorie J. Green called Trump during the day. That was, I thought, a, I mean, I don't even want to dwell on this, as Bill Galston said, it's so distasteful, but that was an underreported part of it, that Marjorie J. Green went running to Trump to get his blessing and then redoubled her attacks on Nancy Mace and now wants to primary Mace and and makes really disgusting accusations against her or implications, I guess. Uh, So the whole thing is, is, is terrible, but I guess I I would say that um, this is related, therefore a little light, but I mean, I'm just in a state on, on COVID 780,000 people are dead. Uh, And one of our two major parties is at best, you know, kind of cavalier and irresponsible about the public health measures that are needed. And at worst, affirmatively stop trying to stop reasonable public health measures from happening and 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 the conservative media is beyond cavalier and irresponsible it's just not you know conspiratorial and truly damaging to the country and people have just kind of normalized this i don't blame them you know 30 million americans aren't vaccinated i guess that's just the way we are in this country and the boosters been taken up by a few people and people aren't wearing masks where they should and and uh and then, you know, in a way, the Biden administration sort of feels – I don't blame them. They have to kind of work around this because they got to deal with the country they're dealing with. And they can't just write off, so to speak, these people. But people are not outraged enough, in my opinion, about this baby. And why is this happening? Some of it is, you know, you can't stop. It's a huge country, as, as Damon said. And it's going to have well, – always has had. It's going to have all kinds of wacky views on science and, and people being irresponsible and, and – and, reckless in terms of taking risks. But the one reason it's happening is that no one whom these people look up to is telling them that they're being irresponsible or crazy or that they need to do this for the public good. And these are no Republican governor they voted for, almost no Republican senator, almost no Republican House leader, almost no Republican former president. I'm not just thinking of Trump. What about the rest of the Republican and conservative establishment? I mean, everyone just treats with Fox. Of course, Tucker Carlson's now going to say uh, totally insane stuff, and other people, Larry Logan, are going to trash, compare Fauci to Mengele. I guess that's just the world we live in. As a Fox News, Fox Corporation doesn't have a board of directors who are, could stop this tomorrow, as if they don't have a CEO, as if other people on Fox couldn't leave. And the same is true for the whole Republican Party and for uh, other Republican officials past and present. So I'm, i I think we've sort of taken for granted a level of irresponsibility and, and beyond that makes it hard for the country to you know to, to just to function and then and for and, and really is costing us
0: lives. Absolutely. Well said. If that is your low light for for the week, uh, I will proceed to the next person. If not, I'm going to come back to you if you had something no, else it, in it. addition. <laughs> okay, okay. That was, yeah, well said, well said. Okay, Damon Linker. Well, I, I'm going to go a little bit more positive
4: this time. Uh, listeners may recall that two weeks ago before the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, Mona asked us to uh, say something we're thankful for in the country or the culture, and I picked – the company Substack, because I enjoy so many Substacks and find it a very interesting and innovative, positive development uh, in journalism. But I thought today I might highlight the fact that there are still some really good print magazines around, and one of them is Harper's. And uh, their current issue, uh, the December 2021 issue, has a cover story that is I would say it is uh, an interesting challenge to thinking. It is, as I've said to some friends after reading it, I don't think the author named Will Self uh, quite lands his vault in this. It's, It feels a little under-edited. It's extremely dense, and some of the claims in it, you know, require multiple rereads, and I need to look at it again, but it's an extremely stimulating thing that I can't imagine very many magazines publishing in 2021. The title of the essay is A Posthumous Shock, How Everything Became Trauma. I haven't actually done a word count on it, but it takes up 12 pages in the printed magazine it's very long probably around 10,000 words it has references to Freud and discussions of Walter Benjamin the uh, German Jewish literary critic and thinker as well as a lot of postmodern theory about the phenomenon of trauma which I'm sure people are aware has done a lot to shape our thinking and uh, acting around uh, human beings and and moral judgments of them in our politics and this is a very kind of severe critique of this move sort of denies that trauma as we talk about it is even a distinctive thing again am i totally persuaded or can i even fully summarize the argument not exactly but uh sometimes that in and of itself can be a very useful intervention in prompting thought about something and frankly I, once again, can't think of a lot of magazines that would take a risk on something this bold and ambitious in print. And so bravo to Harper's for doing that. Uh, They remain a very good vital magazine.
0: Okay, thank you. I would like to highlight a couple of pieces. One from the Washington Post, um, November 24th. It was a piece called The Mental Health Establishment is Failing Trans Kids. And it was a very important piece written by two therapists, one of whom is a trans person herself. And it's about how the mental health establishment and the medical establishment more broadly has taken this rigid ideological approach to children who, who say that they are trans and that mental health professionals are afraid to counsel children that, you know, maybe they might be going through a phase or that they might be having other problems or, or something, you know, instead there's an immediate rush to just accept that the child's assertion that they are in the wrong body and to begin affirmative treatment, including hormones and puberty blockers and the rest of it. And that this is not the right way to treat children who present this way. And it's doing great harm in, in many cases. And, you know, these are both people who believe that, yes, there are people who are who are trans and, and need sensitive and, uh, uh, and respectful care, but that we are in the grips of a kind of fashion, of a mania, a fad right now to uh, treat every kid who presents. And frankly, they see a lot on the internet and they get ideas. And, you know, the idea that you would immediately start a kid like that on these very, very powerful medications that uh, are going to change their lives irreversibly in many instances is just bad medical practice. So, bravo to the Post for writing this. It's long overdue, and I uh, was very happy to see that. And uh, then I wanted to also just quickly give a shout out to David Frum's piece in The Atlantic, The Steel Dossier and the New. Trump-Russia denialists, where he points out that the fact that there were problems with the Steele dossier does not, as the Trump excusers would have it, prove that the entire Trump-Russia story was all uh, a fake or fraud. And so with that, I want to thank Will Salatin for joining us as guests. I want to thank Bill Kristol for filling in this week. I want to thank all of our Listeners, please spread the word if you appreciate this kind of civil dialogue on important matters, and we will be back next week as every week.